0: are listening to the oneofus.net podcast network oneofus.net and all of the shows on it are 100% subscriber supported please consider becoming a subscriber to oneofus.net keep the site and all of our great shows going and get some terrific bonus content as well Hey, it's digital noise time! Oh my god, that
1: was horrible. What was that? In my head, I was like, I can make this horn noise, because I watched, I listened to the other one and John was talking about not being able to make that sound. <laughs> I was like, I could do that, and damn now, it! Apparently it's no, impossible I really sound. Can't. <laughs> okay,
0: I can't. So, hi, I'm Aaron. <laughs> it was the brown note, is what that was. <laughs> hi, Aaron, thank you for joining me. Do you need some toilet paper? <laughs> uh, we are talking, as always, about Blu-ray and DVDs right on the verge of Fantastic Fest, where you'll be hearing a lot more from Aaron and May talking about the various crazy experiences and films we get to see there. Yeah, you can hear me become progressively more and more tired. Yeah. It'll be fun. All of us, seriously. <laughs> There'll be a point halfway through you'll probably do exactly what I do, it's like, I'm just gonna take the day off. Like there are those days you're like, you know what? I got the screening room at home, so I can just sit in my underwear and I just watch like the press screeners at home, and just never like like be half awake. And it's wonderful. Yeah, I-, I still have to get up in the morning and
1: help my kid and family get off. So I'm going to be waking up at six a.m.
0: Yeah, you're going to be uh, burning <laughs> the candle at both ends. Yeah, uh, I- good luck I- with that.
1: I-, I-, I figure I can like. Get in a couple of hours nap before I leave the theater. You really get least. that plan. I just
0: won't go to the Midnight Films, not realizing, of course, that some of the best films that play Fantastic Fest yeah, are no, always I, the Midnight Films. I realize films. that. <laughs> I, we're, we're here to do digital noise, though, and we've got some movies that would qualify as Fantastic Fest films. Yeah, we in do. Fact, I think this first one may even have played it. I'm I, not I, even I know
1: 100% sure. At least one of these played at Fantastic Fest.
0: Well, the first one we're talking about is Dog Tooth. That was the one. <laughs> this is the <laughs> film by Yorgos Lanthimos that really put him on the map as a writer-director for most people. It yeah. was a pretty big breakout uh, as his second feature film, which won uh, the pre uncertain Regard at the 2009 Cannes Film Festival and was nominated for Best Foreign Language Film at the 83rd Academy Awards. I remember seeing it and having not being prepared for how weird this movie is but it's weird in a way it's weird in a way that it sets up its own universe and I never felt like what the hell is going on but it's just such a peculiar set of rules that's happening inside of it
1: and and like that's the thing that kind of pulls me through this movie is... I I did say Dogtooth was the name, right? Yeah. Okay. He doesn't ever do any exposition. He never really explains anything. He just drops you into the situation and then just lets everything play out very naturally. So you're spending half the movie going, what... (laughs) <laughs> Why are they throwing toy planes into their backyard? Oh,
0: yeah, they, okay. It's like everything is explained, but the first time you see it, you won't know what's happening. Yeah, exactly. I, and it's such an odd and upsetting, well, at points, film, Only like kind of graphically, not emotionally, yeah. really. Well, like, so uh, I kind of knew what to expect. I, I knew
1: the plot going into this movie because I had avoided it for years because uh, <laughs> uh, I, I knew that it was going to be movie that tried me, and <laughs> I, I was ready for the uh, sexually graphic content, because I knew that was part of the plot. I was not prepared for how realistic the violence was to a point that I legitimately don't know how he filmed the scenes he did without actually like bashing in the heads of the people he <laughs> was violent with in the movie. I just don't get it. Like It looks that real.
0: <laughs> it is pretty real. Uh, the, the plot of Dogtooth is... We meet this older couple, and they have uh, a adolescent son and two adolescent daughters. Even though all of them are clearly played by thirty somethings,
1: and, and the daughter, one of the daughters, is older than the adolescent son.
0: Right. And they we learn quickly that they have never experienced the outside world. Their parents have sheltered them to the point to creating this whole fantasy, saying eventually they're going to get one of their canines will fall out, which they call a dog tooth. Say when that falls out, that means that they can actually handle the outside world and they'll get to leave the compound they built around them by car. There's no television except for hooked up to a VCR where they play videos they filmed themselves yeah, of doing things.
1: And like the the aforementioned little planes thrown into the backyard, yeah. that's because they've told them that planes they see flying overhead are actually toy plane sized. Yeah. And, and it's th- special when one crashes. They have like a 10 foot high fence and anytime any of them are in any way exposed to the outside world they talk about whatever they see is some random thing that it's not like uh, there's a word for god it's an e word for for like being exposed to something and they tell them it's a hard floor you know like they completely change their vocabulary and, and basically what the movie is is in the beginning the son not the daughter who's older by the way mm-hmm. Uh, has hit an age where he has sexual desires now. And the dad he owns a factory has started to bring home this n- security watch lady as basically a prostitute. Yeah. Uh, so that he can get out his urges. And the inciting incident in the movie is she is tired of the son being <laughs> basically not doing anything for her. Right. And proceeds to Trade sexual favors with one of the uh, other daughters for gifts, yeah, and A little like like her headband, like her first. headband, and then then some movies, and so like, like that that exposure to the outside world kind of spirals their little environment out of control.
0: Yeah, especially the eldest daughter who starts yeah. realizing. It, well, she's kind of really the main character. She's yeah.
1: she's the only one who has an actual journey in the movie.
0: I I Agreed. I mean, like, everybody in it has a lot of pretty much equal time on film to some degree, but she is definitely the one who is the the one most involved in the inciting incident, who realizes she's got to get out of this compound somehow. And she thinks to do that, she has to lose her dog Well, and and so here's the thing that that I struggle with on this movie. And
1: it's something that I ran into with another movie that we're going to talk about here. And, and I kind of felt with his most recent stuff. So, I, I'm i not the biggest fan of Yorgos Lanthimos. I, I I probably just butchered his name. I'm sorry. I think that's correct. Um, like, I, I enjoyed the favorite mostly, but there was still a little bit of, like, I, I'm not quite sure what you're getting at here. And both uh, – this movie really – I hit the end and I was like, okay, I was enthralled. I was into it. I – I thought it was beautifully shot. It mm. was well acted. I can't actually fault the movie, but it's like, what's the point? Oh, I like, can tell you. And, and then oh, I, I spent like three days googling oh, it, yeah. going like, okay, really I, I need to understand this because I was like, okay, this is nice.
0: But I mean, essentially, he's making the point that overprotecting your children, or even if you're looking at a bit of metaphor, your people is is. Arguably, even more dangerous than letting them find well, things out for themselves, and,
1: and it's also supposedly a a look at how the structure of civilization that we lay on our in our own lives, and the words we use, the dialogue we have, how it's all made up, and yeah. how like you can very much if you take something and isolate it, you can manipulate it to be whatever you want it to be.
0: Yeah. Like, once I started reading about it, I was like, okay, I like this more. And there's been no end of think pieces about it. I personally am a big Lanthimos fan. I enjoy have enjoyed all but one of his films, which is the other one we're about to talk about. (laughs) Uh, um, And I found this kind of mesmerizing i was like i've never seen anything like this that it's so odd and yet i understand everything that's going on and it made me i just couldn't get out of my head for like a week afterwards Um. Uh, i just found it really fascinating and there are some really deeply upsetting moments in here for sure and some graphic sexuality this is obviously not okay to show children on any level or parents (laughs) (laughs) um now, this is the first upgrade they've done to Blu-ray that I'm aware of, uh, and apparently the only real difference between this and a previous release is the previous release apparently got the the timing of the film slightly off, uh, so it's actually a little bit out of speed, which is obviously an issue, just a tiny bit. This yeah. apparently fixes that. It's a, a slightly better uh, uh, visually and audibly, but not by a, well, a marked amount.
1: Th- and the thing is, this isn't the kind of movie where... Uh, that really matters a ton. As beautiful as it is, it's not its not a visual masterpiece and like, wow, you're seeing these amazing vistas. It's just shot really well. Yeah, It's kind of like watching any of those old 8mm, 16mm movies.
0: Uh, there are some extra features on here, some of which are new, including Yorgos Lanthimos in Conversation, which is a very <laughs> recent interview for 45 Minutes, where he talks about the favorite. <laughs> Strangely <laughs> enough. There's three deleted scenes. There is a archival interview with Yorgos uh, the original trailer and a commentary by, uh, two of the actors. Although the one who played the youngest daughter, she died. I just one of the things I learned re- reading Aww. about this, like not that long ago. That's unfortunate. Yeah, and she was actually kind of turning into a big thing, apparently. Oh. So it's very unfortunate. Uh, next up we have another Yorgos Lanthimos film to talk about. <sighs> and this is the aforementioned. The Yorgos film, I could not get into. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> A- and that is ALPS, also being released for the first time, I believe, on Blu-ray. It competed uh, in uh, competition at the 68th Venice International Film Festival, or won the Ocella for Best Screenplay, and also won the official, official competition prize for New Directions in Cinema at the Sydney Film Festival in 2012. So, yes, this was, I believe, so it was post-Dogtooth. Um, Wait. What? Oh, okay. Isn't it? Am Wait. I wrong? I I thought it was first. Maybe it is the first. Hold on. I'm going to look at the filmography now. Well... No, it is after.
1: Um, really? Oh. So Dogtooth was his big hit, then. Dogtooth Tooth was his premiere, I yeah, should Yeah, and
0: I have not seen everything by him. His his uh, previous film that was the full-length feature was called Kinetta, which came out in oh. 2005. Not oh, I see you were that. talking about Alps. Um, but after Alps, he went on to do The Lobster, The Killing of a Sacred Deer, and then The Favorite, You know, which obviously kind of turned him into the three of those turned him into a huge and, and name
1: i'll admit dog Tooth has made me want to go see the lobster and the killing of a sacred
0: deer i'm like i like both those films a lot i think the killing of a sacred deer is more mesmerizing but that might be because i'm such a horror person so, and it more leans towards yeah, horror this movie i i don't know that i could even tell you the plot of it well here's Please where we're going to give our best shot <laughs> So, and it's one of those movies, I hardly ever say to do this, but go to Wikipedia and read the description of this film or read the back cover before you watch it, because I was 30 minutes in, I was like, I have no fucking clue what this movie is about. I did the same thing. And I finally was like, oh, okay, well, I guess that puts it a little more in context, but there's this group of people that have formed this organization where they decide in the course of the movie to call themselves the Alps, which each one gets a, a code name of a, a mountain in the Alps.
1: That was the scene in which I paused it and went to go get the DVD cover.
0: <laughs> <laughs> And uh, it, their whole deal is they have an organization where they provide, provide this service to families who have recently lost their loved ones, where they pretend to be the person who had just died and go and visit the people to help them get through the grief. Yeah. Which is an odd thing to begin with. Which, I mean, it's a very Yorgos Lanthimos beginning. Uh, and it centers on one particular character, a night nurse played by Angeliki Papulia, who apparently is, is kind of a major actress. Well, she was, she was the, also in Dogtooth. Yeah, she was the older sister. Yeah, and she was in The Lobster as well, uh, amongst oh. other films. Uh, she won an award for her performance in Dog Dogtooth, in fact. But I'm not really sure, outside of an interesting idea for a plot... After that, what we were supposed to get from this movie, because it's very, very slow and not a lot is happening. She's gradually getting a little too invasive in these people's lives where they end up start going, "Okay, that's enough. You can go now. And she starts kind of losing it because she's finding this emotional connection to people for the first time, I think, because of her pretending to be someone who has an emotional connection with them. So, But it just didn't. I, I have any weight to it. For I, me. I think
1: the struggle for me was that where like dog- so both movies take this style of there's no exposition, there's no setup. It's just boom, we're into it, and we're watching characters interact in these sequences as if they really would, which is is it, it's good for to a certain point, but when it was split up amongst all the different characters as opposed to just in one location with one group of people like Dogtooth was, mm-hmm. I. I just kept losing the thread and going like, like every every time it kept switching back to. I, I specifically when I started to kind of fade out was, she was practicing English with a guy, and I was just going like, I I don't even what's happening here. <laughs> like is is he somebody who she's working with or is he one of
0: the group now? And I was just super confused watching this movie. I did find it very confusing as well, and in a way, like I said, Dogtooth. It always ex- ends up explaining what it was that you found confusing at first in a way that was almost like pl- very pleasant. You go, yeah. Oh, that's what that means. Yeah. That's kind of neat. This movie has a lot of stuff where I felt like it just kind of let lay there. and And like I said, there's I think it would have benefited if it spent more time with the other members of this group who are really almost just window dressing in the film to establish there are other people. I would have liked to have – this feels like it would have been so much better if it was more of an ensemble film, but it's not. It's so – it becomes so focused on her, and she's not terribly interesting. No. At least in my opinion, anyway. No, no. I I can't think of anything else to add. This – (laughs) <laughs>
1: last one, last episode, I was listening to John talk about how there are some movies that he starts to play, and he just kind of makes it halfway through, and he's like, you know, like, I could be doing anything at this point, and I'm watching this movie right now. That's kind of how I felt about it. This was the movie I think I ended up liking maybe the least out of all the movies in this set. Yeah, it's just... It's just not for me.
0: very dry and, and uh, it took a lot of patience to get
1: through and it. And actually, quite frankly, I'm really glad. Uh, so I misunderstood you and thought this came out before Dogtooth, so I watched it first. Uh, I think this was the second movie I watched out of this set. It feels like
0: it would, would have so, preceded it just in terms of, like, it just feels like it's not from not as like, mature a filmmaker or a storyteller. If I think if I had watched this after Dogtooth, I don't know that I would be like, yeah, I'm going to check out The Lobster and <laughs> <or> The <laughs> Sacred Deer now. Uh, yeah, fair. Uh, the only extra feature Here's an audio commentary by film historian Amy Simmons. So, I mean, like I said, Dogtooth, I think, is kind of, for anybody who's really interested in independent cinema, I think it's kind of an essential watch. It's, it's a really fascinating film. Yeah. Alps is not. No, no, skip it. <laughs> uh, next up, we have an, another major film in the history of independent movies, although one that I admit I had kind of mixed feelings about, which is Criterion's release of the 1990 film Jane Campion, which was really her first really major film. And she went on to do, like, The Piano and other big yeah. Academy Award winning films. But An Angel at My Table is a... Uh, biopic about poet Janet Frame and her three autobiographies that she wrote. It was very well received when it came out, winning multiple awards, the New Zealand Film and Television Awards, <coughs> the Toronto International Film Festival, and it had second prize at the Venice Film Festival. Um, Janet Frame played here by three different actresses, but most notably Carrie Fox, who went on to be a bigger star, playing the adult version of her uh she uh all of them look so similar it takes a minute you're like did they film this over like yeah. 10 years
1: it felt like uh about a boy the yeah. one where they followed that one kid over twelve yeah. years. Yeah, they look so like similar. It's because they all have the hair. That hair is so striking. Yeah, yeah they look. That like, you don't notice anything else. They
0: look like <laughs> a, a plump little orphan. <laughs> the huge curly head of red hair. Like especially with a little girl, you're just like, yeah. Oh, honey, <laughs> you know you've got to lose the hair. I'm Sorry, <laughs> that's insane. But apparently, that's how Janet Frame really looked, and uh, it is about. Her growing up from a poor family, and then she, because she was, uh, I think they call her schizophrenic, but then later it seems like maybe she wasn't. Well, so so Um, it
1: it shifts. So, like, I... I had a lot of issues with the beginning of this movie. The first act of this movie, I I wanted to turn it off. It was just like, Jesus Christ, this movie just has no point. Um, once it starts, she starts getting older, the movie start, has more of a direction. And yeah, uh, when she gets into the final actress who plays her for the lion's share of the movie, um, basically she has this descent into, not really descent into madness. I, I don't want to paint her in that light, but it, it's yeah. almost as if, everybody else decides that she has a mental issue. Right.
0: And which is and, not uncommon for, well, most of human history, I suppose. And so like like part
1: of it, I was like, okay. And it's when I started really getting into the movie where I was like, okay, so we're talking about somebody who has a you know a severe anxiety disorder and can't handle being around people. And then she gets labeled as schizophrenia, like you said, which right. I, I'll be honest, there's no point in this movie where I went she fits into what my mind says uh, matches the diagnosis of schizophrenia. No, because later I which, think they were like, she's not schizophrenic. She's, so she's like, probably not, bipolar. I also don't don't know a lot, so it like, right. uh, could be bipolar. Yeah. Like, you don't have a copy
0: like, of the, what is it, the DLM or whatever yeah. it in front of you.
1: Uh, it felt like somebody who had an anxiety disorder. And the movie is just kind of following her life. Uh, it, it goes from her as a small child. Uh, the, the one moment that really... Really connected with me in that whole section is there's a bit where she wins an award from her school, and it comes with a prize of her getting to go basically to the bookstore. Or the library, I couldn't decide. Yeah, yeah. For free, so I think a bookstore. And she brings home a bunch of books for her family, and it's a huge event. She like everybody gets their own book, and they all just sit around reading. And that was the moment that I was like, "Oh, these people are very poor. I get it now." Right. But it, it tracks her as the family develops. She loses two separate sisters, years apart, both to drowning. Yeah, uh, which <laughs> and very different yeah, incidents. <laughs> (laughs) Um, and she goes through high school as a shy girl and goes through college and that's where she spirals out. And after she spends apparently years in shock therapy and all
0: sorts of stuff, uh,
1: she gets out and basically while she was in there, they, she became a national success in New Zealand. Right. And that's the part that I really liked about the movie is that it's an, it's a, follows her career as she becomes an eventually an internationally known author, but because it's very much her in her head, that's not the story. The story is her in the institution.
0: And yet I found not a lot of interesting exploration of her experience in the institution. It's more like, well, she is. Agreed. And, and then there's also, I mean, the big thing is like she's this big poet. I They barely delve into her what defined her as a poet at all in this film I mean, which you might understand better if you read her poetry ahead of time and see these this film as a reflection of the things that were in her poetry but her poetry is really barely represented at all in the film itself it's a little bit more in the last act
1: which is the last third of the movie is her on a international trip basically so she can get inspiration for additional literature and she meets both a really horrid Englishman and a really great American mm-hmm. somehow that's the case I mean the one time we were good in the history <laughs> uh, and has like this whirlwind romance and like it it was nice to see her get some happy at that point but but yeah like the movie just never really felt... It never really sold her being a really special person in history to me. I would have liked to see a little bit more of her writing to yeah. understand
0: it. I'll, although I'm not the world's biggest poetry fan, so I probably would have well, just she been wrote, sitting here going, wrote, going wrote, like, I don't get it, man. Nine
1: novels, too. Yeah, she did. She, yeah. she wrote, like, three like autobiographies. novels, three autobiographies, a bunch of books of short stories and poetry. Right. Uh, and... and Afterwards, I don't remember if it was on the movie or if I tracked it down. Like I I listened to some of an interview with her, which is like,
0: was it on the disc? Yeah, there actually is an archival interview with Janet Frame where she, when she was promoting her first autobiography, talking very candidly about about her childhood years. I mean, the disc here is. Essentially exactly the same as Criterion's previous DVD release. There's no new bonus features. I mean, the ones that he are here are good. Brief making of a documentary, red carpet footage, uh, some very short deleted scenes, a booklet that comes in with it. But the main thing is that it's a significantly fixed up from DVD to Blu ray presentation. Yeah. So if you're a fan of this film, which, you know, isn't the sort of film that's well, a showpiece for, for <laughs> HD or anything, but you if you're a fan, this is the best version that it, it is. It, it,
1: this movie is one of those movies that reminds me that Criterion does not put out the best movies. They put out the most important movies. And so they put out movies that like influenced Hollywood or cinema itself. Yeah, Not necessarily the ones that you're
0: going to have the most fun watching. Yeah, I mean, it depends. Criterion's put out a lot of stuff that is like, yeah, this is among my favorite films. And I'm so grateful we have a Criterion of it. Like we got to see have Hedwig and the Angry Inch yeah. not that long ago. But they also put out stuff like this. I'm like, I'm never going to rewatch watch this movie. I mean, my mom, I'm sure, will love it. But I was like, it's just not for me. I get why it was an important film at the time. It certainly launched the career of Campion and went on to do much better films. I, mean, I really like The Piano quite a yeah. bit. Uh, But what are you going to do? Now, the other film, the company that we talk about a lot that puts out home releases in a pristine, here's the best version you could possibly get of it version, but often aren't as high profile as the Criterion stuff is Arrow. Yeah. But Arrow... Uh, does everything from like the grungiest like giallo or 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 gang- japanese gangster films or horror movies to what they call arrow academy where they take old black and white films that are sort of minor classics and fix those up and i'm really glad to see the major and the minor which is 1942 film uh directed by billy wilder and uh, aaron i saw you uh, tweeting putting on facebook like oh it's my first billy wilder film i'm like oh dude you have so many great yeah, films. I to know. Watch in front
1: and, of you. and i'll admit i was watching it and i was like okay great this is just another arrow black and white and then directed by billy wilder popped up and i was like oh well, shit, never mind. Been, I'm here. Yeah, you like,
0: <laughs> I've been meaning to get to him. I, and th- Like I said, it was his first American film. It was the one that was kind of a hit, and it launched him having a very lengthy directing uh, career afterwards. And but Wilder does a lot of very snappy dialogue-type films. He, he feels like he was the, um, oh, and I'm just blanking on his
1: name, uh, the guy who did The West Wing. Oh, uh, Aaron Sorkin. Yeah, he feels like he was the
0: Sorkin of that era. I can see that <laughs> totally. Uh, not all his stuff was comedies, mind yeah. you, but a good portion of it. This particular movie, and I understand that from the outside, this is by modern day tones, oh, yeah. it's going to sound yeah. upsetting. But before
1: you get into this, my wa- so my au pair watched this separately one day when I was putting my son to bed. Mm-hmm. My wife caught part of it and came out and was like, Fuck that movie, Aaron. (laughs) She just saw, like, the middle segment, which is just super sexist.
0: It's funny that, like, this movie that does indeed do some things that by today's standards are pretty sexist when you watch it in the context of the times, it was actually incredibly forward and yeah, modern. I, I was explaining that to her too. Sorry, continue. I did uh, not mean to interrupt. Okay. Uh, Ginger Rogers, yay, unfortunately doesn't get to dance, but hey, what are you going to do? She plays Susan Applegate. She's been working in New York City uh, after leaving from a small town in Iowa, trying to make it work. She finally is just tired of the, no one takes her seriously. Everyone relentlessly hits on her and is sexist. There's a very telling scene early in the film where she's in a train station. It's a kid comes by and wants to but hey mom i want to buy the murder magazine and then you see a newsstand picture uh, a paper saying it's like are all women bad yeah. and you're just like jesus christ i mean right off the bat while i was trying to say something well you know?
1: the, the opening scene is her going to do her job and four separate men spinning the entire segment just trying to get under her pants right
0: and she's like you know what that's it fuck this i'm leaving so she gets to the train station discovers They've raised the prices on train fare. She can't make it. The only way she could is if she was a child and she ain't a child. But she says, you know what? I'm going to give this a shot. So she goes and she puts all her hair in pigtails and tries to wear her most childish look and goes and pretends to be a kid and bribes this guy uh, to pretend to be her dad to send her on the train.
1: I want to throw out there that the biggest suspension of disbelief you're going to have in this movie is, that anyone is watching a 30-year-old woman pretend that she's 14. Yeah,
0: 9, 14, 12.
1: 12, yeah. that's right. Uh. Like She does not look 12. There will never be a point that she looks 12. Yeah. But once you get
0: past that... Right. <laughs> so she uh, gets on the train, but the conductors are suspicious and basically bust her smoking. Yeah. <laughs> and so she's on the run throughout the train and she hides and enters a car, uh, a compartment, private compartment that Ray Milland, yay, is in, who is a uh, uh, army major and he believes she's a frightened child, and says, "No, no, you can stay here. Of course, you can stay here." Um, and uh, the train is de- is delayed, and there's an issue where uh, basically Raymond Lenz's f- fiance shows up and sees this girl in her, his compartment, and, and it's like, "What the fuck?" Correctly, her here is a thirty year old woman, right? <laughs> All, and then later, he's like, "Told no, no, she's just a kid," and when immediately buys it, yeah. <laughs> but they're like, you know what? Um, we're gonna take you to the school where they all call her Susu where, where, uh, where Ray, uh, Milan works, the military Academy and introduce you to everyone. And we're just going to take care of you for a little while. Uh, you know, and then we'll get you to where you were going. Her, uh, the teenage sister, younger sister of the fiancé immediately goes, yeah, yeah, I'm sorry. She's the only character in the whole thing who's like, she's not blinded by her age. She's like, no, you're like 30.
1: She's also maybe the best character in the movie. Yeah. Played by Diane she's like a Lynn. Don't
0: fuck with me. Science obsessed. Right. Snarky teenager. Yeah. <laughs> she's very likable and very modern. Um, and she's like, okay, I'll help you keep your secret. But here's the deal. Dad wants to go. I mean, he's in a very military career. His fiancée is kind of a gold digger and wants yep. to keep him here and sabotage his career uh, for other things that she wants. And I want you to help him do what he <laughs> wants to do. And, yes, it does eventually turn into a love story between Land who completely believes she's a 12-year-old girl, and... And uh, uh, Rita Hayworth. But it's never a moment... It's not one of those films that's like, oh, he's falling for her, even though he's like, oh, God, what am I doing? She's just a little girl. It's really one of those at the last possible second. The movie's like, "Yay, she's not that age!" He's like, "What? Oh, that's great! I love you," yeah. which is awkward, and there's no way to really make it work. But at least he doesn't spend a lot of the film dwelling on that being an issue. You know, I mean, yeah. she's got the hots for him, but he's stuck in a position. There's nothing she can do about. It. And, and all like, this is one of those movies. It's like
1: watching an old James Bond movie where you just have to go in and be like, "All right." this movie is going to be sexist by modern days. This movie is going to have content which just I aggressively do not agree with and then go with it. Mm-hmm. And then if you do that, this movie is flippin' hilarious.
0: Yeah, it's, it's funny as The dialogue as well. is
1: snappy. The setups are great. The of, actors all do a wonderful job. The timing, oh my God. And,
0: and part of it what makes it is so not super point. creepy is that Milland is just genuinely this, like, totally the sweetest guy who's ever lived. He's like this completely unassuming just nice as possibly could be human being. Yeah, like While well, like, <laughs> well, everyone around him is a terrible person. Yeah, even the kids <laughs> at the school he's trying to set up on like they all want to spend time with the t- hot 12 year old who showed up and they're all trying to make the moves on her too. And, and, was, uh,
1: the, the best bit is that they all try to make the exact same move. Right. Like one of them, his older brother gave them this like speech to give that'll trick ladies into bed and they all give the exact same speech verbatim.
0: Well, this is a fun movie. If you like other Wilder films, I really recommend it. I mean, once again, it's like from the 40s. You've got to separate it to some degree from modern day context. But all that being said, it's really not all that creepy considering what the plot is. It it, it
1: is is the least creepy movie it could be, given that it's about a man in his 30s falling
0: in love with what he thinks is a 12 year old. I literally (laughs) just watched a movie with that same plot, but that's incredibly (laughs) bizarre called... Diamantino, we're a really dumb but gorgeous soccer rich soccer player, it's being investigated by undercover people and so they send this 30-something-year-old girl to pretend she's a, like, 14-year-old boy that he adopts. And they're like, yay! And she starts falling in love with him because he really is the nicest human being in the whole world. <sighs> but it's surrounded with, like, bizarre, hallucinatory shit and okay. giant <laughs> giant Pomeranians <laughs> and all sorts of stuff. But, anyway, I'll talk about that on a future show. Sure this is chapter two? No, it is not. Uh, the extra features on here, there's an appreciation commentary track by Adrian Martin. There's a 30-minute video appreciation from Neil Sin uh there's an interview with ray Milland from 1975 where we're talking about his whole career that's about 30 minutes is the original radio play and the image gallery and trailer on here so but it's a solid uh, little i'll be production. honest
1: out of all the titles this is probably the one i had the second most fun with
0: i agree yeah well you know outside of one that i've seen multiple times and i did not rewatch for this because i know it by heart anyway
1: yeah same
0: uh, <laughs> uh, uh so next up, well, outside of two that I feel that way about, I would say. Uh, next up is another uh, Arrow film. Although this isn't from their Academy. This is from their more ooh, Giallo ooh, side. This is, is Arrow. Which is Who Saw the, <laughs> Her Die, a 1972 Italian Giallo film that stars George Lazenby, and which yep. regularly has been credited as one of his best film performances, weirdly. He's good at it? Yeah. Uh, also starring Anita Strindberg, playing his ex-wife, who's who they, they still hook up. Um, but they're in they're parents of this little girl. We see in the beginning there's a black-veiled killer who's killing children. Yeah, too. which,
1: by the way, oh, my God. It is, I counted, 30 seconds into this movie when you see a little kid get her brains bashed in. Yeah. And it is insanely and like, what graphic. What did you do
0: with the sack you <laughs> <Well, he> just handed? <laughs> I,
1: I, I paused and it was like, what the shit? Yeah. I were. We are not far enough into this movie for me to see this.
0: <laughs> uh, so we're, we know that the killer's around, but then we see Lazenby's in Venice with his daughter. Uh, his ex-wife is there, too, who he's kind of weirdly having an affair with his ex-wife. I don't yeah. know what that's all about. First, I thought it was somebody else. I, I actually didn't realize it was his ex-wife. Yeah. He was having an affair. I thought they were two different women. Yeah. No, I did, too. <laughs> I, I had to double check. Uh, but then... The killer shows up and takes the daughter, unfortunately, which is one of those like, "You know, she's adorable. You yeah, don't want her. She's so too. sweet." Uh, and then it's the, the basically George Lazenby saying, "This will not stand, man," and we're going on a mission to figure out who killed his daughter. And it's very—I it, don't know. It's 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 much more like compared to a lot of the mystery giallo's we've reviewed lately on the show. I understood what was going on yeah, the whole so time.
1: Th- the story made sense. It was a lot more cognizant and put together well. Not enough happened for me. Yeah. Like, it was a little slow, and it dragged out. And a- as with most Chialo, when you really find out what happened, it's like, oh, okay. I yeah, guess. Yeah, it has that one of those
0: <laughs> sure. last minute, like, okay, and that's who the killer was. You're like... Really? Yeah. And And so I kind of just lost track at some point, because there's a lot of minor characters, and so of course it's one of them, and you're like, wait, who is that again? And and there's even a random line at the
1: ending, which I don't want to say, because it does give away who the killer is, Mm -hmm. that really feels like there was a public interest group who went, no, nah, no, nah, this isn't okay. You got to throw in a line right here, okay? Right.
0: <laughs> well, there's a, a Italian and an English cut on here as there are with, with a lot of these things, which are slightly different. <laughs> which is true. I watch the English cut. I, I tend to, too, because sometimes I'm well, – uh, some of these I'll be like uh, like half working on my computer, half yeah. watching. So I'm like, okay. Uh, well, th- and I looked it up.
1: There's, there's not a difference in the cut. Uh, although, except for maybe the opening kid
0: death scene, uh, it's really just different dialogue. Yeah. Uh, and one thing I'd like to point out that I really did like about this is the score by Ennio Morricone. Yeah. Now, Morricone's scores don't always hit me as strongly as they do other people. They're ones that are obviously unassailable. This is one of those ones I was like, oh, I would own and listen to Well, this this is one of those
1: movies where you realize that, yes, Morricone is deservedly famous for his his most famous scores, but then he scored like 8,000 other movies. Mm-hmm. And you don't think about them, because right. they're not
0: always great. Yeah, and this is one of those, I mean, it's it's certainly better than a lot of the, the lesser giallos that are out there by a long shot. Um, I mean, it takes itself seriously in the sense they obviously spent some money on it, yeah. and they've got decent actors in it, like big-name actors. But it... it it's, it's it just, just kind of loses its way about halfway through by getting too bogged down in agatha christieisms without being able to do it well or funny. Yeah, okay, oh, you know?
1: it, it gets further away from who killed my daughter yeah. and into what what's up with these people.
0: Yeah, all these side characters with their own little motivations for stuff that who cares. And and,
1: and I mean, I might be wrong because it's a giallo, so you know, they don't always make 100% sense, but I'm I'm relatively certain it was just kind of, like, coincidental.
0: <laughs> and it, when I kind of thought that through, I was like, oh, well, that's that's lame. <laughs> Agreed. Uh, so the bonus features are there's a new audio commentary by Troy Howarth that talks uh, a a lot about this and Giallo in general. Yeah, he
1: he begins that commentary going, yeah, I'm not really going to talk so much about this movie. I'm going to talk about Giallo as a whole. Right,
0: which I'd rather hear anyway. I I, agree. There's I Saw Her Die, which is a new video interview with the director Aldo Lando that's about an hour long in length, uh, where he... he, Worked for Bernardo Bertolucci, apparently, at one point, and that got his career started. Nicoletta, Child of Darkness, is a 27-minute video interview with actress Nicoletta Elmi, where she talked about being the child actor here, getting her start, and then what happened to her since then. Oh, um f- I'm, that makes me feel better because I swear to God I knew her
1: from something. Right. She had a very familiar Just, face. Uh, on
0: Arge- in an Argento film, too, but I'm not sure which one. I want to say Deep Red, but I'm not 100%. Once Upon a Time in Venice is a new interview with the co-writer Francesco Barilli. That's 31 minutes. There's Giallo in Venice, a new 26-minute interview with author and critic Michael McKenzie that basically he tries to put this versus all the other giallos coming out in the same decade and how that place is there. Um, and then there's a, a poster, a photo gallery, menus, what have you, uh, and a color insert booklet as is- well, this is okay. I mean, for uh, if you're a huge Giallo fan, yeah, absolutely, check yeah. it out. It's definitely better than a lot of the ones we've seen. Right, but <laughs> if you're like a more of a tourist, this is Man. far from essential. Next up, we have going way forward into uh, horror. We have Daybreakers. Now, this is one of those movies. I'm a big fan of the Spierig brothers, Michael and Peter Spierig, who directed this. Who have also done a lot of other movies. I thoroughly, thoroughly and have enjoyed. In-
1: I am not. <laughs>
0: you're not a fan of their films in general, um, or of this. Enjoy- general uh so i I saw
1: undead i think the undead their zombie movie yeah undead uh, when it first came out i love that movie i couldn't make it through it oh wow Um, so
0: uh, maybe movie maybe i I should
1: give it a shot again but and then i saw daybreakers originally in theaters because everyone i knew loved it and it was right up my alley and i hated the ending so much that it retroactively, like, spoiled the movie for
0: me. I loved their uh, predestination as well. I I have not seen it, which I've heard that's legitimately great. I thought Jigsaw was... bad and i thought winchester was atrocious so i don't know what the hell's going on with those guys but uh they certainly in my opinion started well having repeatedly worked with ethan hawk who plays uh, in a world where vampires won the vampire war happened humans are a rarity there's only a few of them running around and vampires are going oops we might have killed too many of the humans and,
1: and i have to say the Best thing about this movie is how well thought out and detailed the society is. Mm-hmm. Like, especially for the fact that this movie was made for, like, ten bucks. Like, y- they really did a great job putting their money in the right That's places. It's $20 million. It, it's a very believable environment. It's
0: a $20 million movie. That blows me away, really. See, I thought it looked great. Uh, yeah. All right,
1: so here's my big issue with Daybreakers. Um, I- I'm a lot more okay with it now than i was originally i I thought it was decent um but I, i think the spirit brothers they occasionally stop trying to make a good movie and instead trying to instead focus on making this cheesy bloody genre movie and so like there's The narrative will kind of be like, okay, I'm with it, I'm with it, I'm with it, and then there's this sequence where they'll they'll spend two or three minutes just going on about blood and guts. I don't know. It goes a little bit too far for me, and I still think the ending is just. I I prefer.
0: I think the best films are uh, in the horror genre are those that both want to be a really good film and have sequences with intense Uh, blood and guts. I
1: I agree. I I don't mean that. I don't mean to say the blood and guts is bad because I agree. Um, I feel like. There are parts where they go, "Oh, this is going to be fun," and then forget to make it good too. See, Uh, and and so like sequences kind of occasionally run me wrong, where I was like, "Well, like there's an action sequence with." Uh, crossbows and the military attacking, and it's a really cool sequence that doesn't make a ton of sense if you really stop and think about it. And I kept having stuff like that, where it just rubbed me the wrong well,
0: let way. Let me continue with the Sorry, plot sorry. sorry. That's <laughs> alright. Uh, so, the idea is that because they have, like... Turn most of the world's population into vampires. They're running out of blood, and the problem is when vampires start turning out of blood, they start turning more bat-like. They go completely psycho and will attack absolutely anyone. Obviously, this is going to be a problem. So uh, there's humans left, but they're being captured. and They've been captured and harvested in laboratory farms. Meanwhile, Ethan Hawke and other scientists are researching a synthetic blood substitute, which is not going the way they hoped it was going. It's not going that great. So along the way, he ends up. Meeting up with some other humans led by William Defoe, who is a, who are a, a you know a rebel group. So a William
1: Defoe named
0: Elvis. <laughs> yes, named Elvis, <laughs> and starts discovering that these humans might have a point. Might, it might be time for the pendulum to swing back. The well, and
1: way. the big deal, which uh, hush me if I'm going to spoil something, but is that William Defoe was a vampire. Right. And has found the secret to turning back into a
0: human. Right. So the question, then you start getting into questions, which I thought was one of the things that's interesting at the end. So let's say that's a cure that they find, like you can turn vampires back to humans. So do they turn the, choose to turn the guilty back into humans and then use them for food would they so like, like how would that even work like,
1: like there's so many good ideas in this movie uh I love the fact that when they don't drink blood they turn into like nosferatu uh which is a great way to work in the different visuals that vampires have had over the years and I actually really Love the idea that once you've been turned into a human, you kind of become a carrier, and 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 like like that concept is cool. And there are a lot of other really cool ideas and neat things. So like, I, I had a lot of fun watching this movie. I. I still just think that it doesn't come together as a whole.
0: Uh, there's other well-known faces in here, like Sam Neill plays <laughs> basically the, the, the evil corporate vampire tyrant. And he is great. I love watching Sam Neill in movies. And a lot of very fam- like people you like don't know the name, but familiar people you've seen in other supporting roles in TV and movies. But like I said, for me, this movie really works. I go back and rewatch this one regularly, but I'm also kind of a sucker for vampire movies. No pun intended. <laughs> uh, unfortunately, the 4K is not a massive upgrade over the previously existing Blu-ray. Even though the Blu-ray came out relatively early in in the Blu-ray cycle's life of of, of release formats. This is not too advanced over that one, but a little bit. And it's exactly the same bonus features that was on that one. Uh, this comes with that Blu-ray, the exact Blu-ray as well. They've not done anything to even enhance the Blu-ray, just the 4K which version. Which, admittedly,
1: it, it doesn't look terrible. I don't have a 4K player, so I watched the Blu-ray, and it, it's decent.
0: Yeah, no, I mean, it was a decent transfer. Like, in the like, honestly,
1: I'll admit that, that my issues with this movie are, are personal. That's in fair. any other world, I would be like, yeah, this is a great movie, because this is so up my alley. Like, it, if you're at all interested into genre, horror, action, or vampires, it's worth a
0: watch. All right, next up, and you did not see this, or at least, I don't know, maybe you did, is Legends of Tomorrow Season 4? Nope. Of- I have quit the Berlantiverse. Okay, so I get it. I've, like like arrow i'm like the only reason i'm still watching is cuz i wasn't even going to watch this last season but they were like the only one more half season after this and i'm like fine well, and this is
1: apparently the real end right, right. is what then, they've the said. next season yeah no no they've like oh you mean Steven this last season. and yeah, the, yeah. the the the, the a the lot of the creators cor- have actually gone,
0: yeah, season seven, that's the actual end of the right. show. Season eight almost entirely takes place in the future. Okay, yeah. With it, different it, with their children. It really has been going like, then why the fuck would anyone watch season eight? And The Flash has been having issues. Um, like It's just not as fun as it used to be. I, I mean, it's still better than Arrow by a sizable margin. It always has been. But it's still like, okay, you're just kind of going through the same. You're hitting the same marks over and over again. Supergirl I still enjoy, but there's a point you're just like, God, there's so many good shows to watch, and I've already seen a lot of this, and they're losing fucking Martian Manhunter and everything. I'm like, what? He was, like, the best character on the show. You know what?
1: So they're never going to do my idea of only do three seasons, and then switch new characters. Right. So what they they need to start doing is they need to start doing 12 to 13 episode seasons. Everybody needs to start doing that. that's the hard part. It's just like, Oh, Jesus, I have eight more episodes to watch, and I am
0: done. Well, here's the thing. Legends of Tomorrow has traditionally been, of all these shows, the one I like. Well, not even traditionally, because the first season's kind of weak. The, the second season's two seasons terrible. are really great, because yeah. they're completely absurd. They get the Doctor Who, American Doctor Who vibe right, with this collection of b less characters that come together on this time-traveling ship and have fill-in-the-blank mission they have to accomplish against fill-in-the-blank evil enemy. Yeah. And they're fun. They're so goofy. They, they're they like, yes, they go and hook up with the young George Lucas, and they accidentally dissuade him from making Star Wars, and now the entire history of tons of stuff changed, so they've got to go back and make him want to make Star Wars again. God, that was a stuff great like episode. That. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> and you're like, this is fun. These guys are like, nobody's taking this real seriously. Let's just have a good time and make it about meeting historical characters like Doctor Who. Uh, season four very much starts off that way. It starts off strong with it. John Constantine, the same guy who's been playing him since they first gave him his own his own <laughs> series that got canceled, and then played him in the animated stuff, and now is play. I played him on Arrow, and now is playing him. I'm going to be honest
1: at this point: has he been a guest star on more episodes than he was the main character in? Yeah, I, I'm sure. <laughs>
0: But uh, he has, like, joined the crew. Because every season, there's a slightly different crew. They shake it up a little bit. And this time, the idea is that there is a... um Constantine saying there's this big darkness coming. I'm not exactly sure what the details are. But he finds out something is freeing fantasy creatures across like from other realms into the regular realm, but in different points in time. So now they have to go hunt stuff like the fairy godmother, right? And this a stuff? unicorn that's murderous.
1: It really makes me angry that you're talking like this is going to become a bad season, because that's a well, great setup.
0: Here's the thing. <laughs> it is really good for a while. I was thoroughly enjoying this stuff, but it ended up getting more mired than usual in a lot of the sort of uh, the typical cw drama between characters yeah. stuff uh, i mean it really got too mired in that, that those things and made some really silly decisions along the way and the ending i am not even kidding you uh it it the the solution involves A magical staff that's powered by love, and by one of those Tinkerbell moments where everyone has to clasp their hands together and believe in the power of love to save the day. And I was like, you have got to be fucking kidding
1: me. Hey, so it's season four, so Legends of Tomorrow just won't be good anymore. It's the Berlanti way.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it could be. I don't know, but I was... Like I said, I mean, it starts really strong. There's a lot of stuff to like, like there is usual in these things. But, man, that ending, I was just like, this, I don't know what the fuck they were thinking this time. That was just a big bummer. And I would hope they've gotten lots of criticism enough for it to have, like, gone, okay, we need to not do that again. <laughs> but who knows? It felt like one of those Lucas doing the prequels moments where they go, ah, nobody but little kids are watching yeah. this. Let's just make it, like, fucking uh, My Little Pony. Like, no. No. Bad call. Bad verse <laughs> Anyway, it's got the usual assortment of the extras you find on these things. But, uh, like I said, it's the first time I was super, like, this is the one show I was like, yes, I'll keep watching Legends of Tomorrow. And now I'm like, even... A2 Legends of Tomorrow. Give
1: it up, man. A 2 There's better superhero TV out there.
0: Uh, moving on, we got a 4K release, which I was super happy for, for the... Original animated Aladdin, which still is among my favorite of the Disney, uh, Agreed. theatrical animated films. I mean, I don't know what more we can say about this movie that hasn't already been said. And we probably have already said on here, I think we even reviewed the previous Blu ray release of this yeah, on this show at one point. But I mean, it's Aladdin. It's magical. It's got great songs by Alan Mencken. Um, yes, it's got some problematic, like, like, stuff in terms of like they almost all did up until recently with like racially to a lesser extent but definitely more of like this girl who's just there to be saved well and and
1: i'm gonna get into that a little bit when we talk about something else right um but yeah i I think this is out of all the disney movies this is the one that has the songs i enjoy the most uh i agree this is my favorite disney movie go buy it if you don't already own it
0: and it's not (laughs) like it's Oh, the insanely better transfer. They spent so much time and money making sure the Blu ray transfer looked fantastic that this, there's only very slight difference. Oh. It's a slightly different aspect ratio, is the most not- notable thing. But other than that, it's like, it's a slight uh, increase in sharpness between the two, which makes this not exactly essential. Uh, the audio is, the, is Disney's Dolby Atmos soundtrack, oh. um, which is okay. Uh, and here's the thing, even though this comes with so, a few ic- new extras, there's new Aladdin. On Aladdin was an interview with the guy Scott we- Weinger, who voiced Aladdin. And I forget what TV show, I think Boy Meets World, he was, like, one of the big stars of after this. But he talks about this for, like, 30 minutes in his experience of, like, his first big, like, acting thing and what that was like talking to his mom and stuff. There's new Let's Not Be Too Hasty, The Voices of Aladdin, which is just a montage of voice recording sessions. Uh, there's uh, two minutes of what they call alternate endings. They're not all that alternate, mind you. They're just it's the storyboards with the audio recording they did for them, which were more specific about pointing out that the the guy who begins the film, the little the salesman uh, in the bazaar, is the genie. It was just more like yes, overtly he was definitely the genie, and uh, there's a like a lot of the other stuff that was uh, pretty much most of the other stuff that was on the previous release. Uh, the song selection did not originally have the reprise versions, but now this one does on here. Uh, the one thing I thought was weird was they poured it over, over half of the original bonus features to digital only. And this comes with a digital code, Ooh. but they're not on the disc. Yes, they do that nowadays, which for some is, reason. I find very frustrating because a lot of the reason people buy the hard copy home releases is because stuff don't last on digital forever anymore. They yeah. made that clear, whether or not you spent money for it. <clears throat> so. This is, like I said, a mixed bag. It's a great film. No, here's the thing this movie is,
1: what, 25 years old? 26? Came out in 1992. It's been released multiple times. We are at a point now where I, I don't think there will ever be a better version of this movie. If you already own it, eh. And if you don't own it, you should,
0: probably, yeah. you know? Uh, surprisingly entertaining, I thought, and not everyone agrees with me, certainly, I just have to get on our All of Us fan page to, to see that, uh, was uh, the live-action remake of, of this film, which yeah. I found, like, at points, is truly great, and at other points... It's as good as it needs to. So, uh, be. but I never found it bad. I agree, I, I, and honestly, uh, and this I, is out on 4K now. So,
1: is what I'm going to spend ten seconds on my soapbox. I don't really have an issue with the idea of remaking the old cartoons. Uh, they're all twenty to forty years old at this point. Uh, it gives a new way for children to watch it. Like my son, who he's seen the live action one and he really loves it. Uh, it what they've started to do, and why I like these, is that it gives them a chance to fix some of the more problematic issues with the original releases. Uh, Jasmine is my favorite character in this version of the movie. Um, and, and Partially
0: because they give her a lot more to yeah. do. Yeah, even if her new songs <sighs> are not... Well, Consistent. I'm, I'm, I'm going to
1: get to that, because I have one major problem with this movie, and that's kind of where it comes to. Uh, it, it's the same basic movie. It adds in a lot more Jasmine in the third act. Uh, she's a lot more of a an actual character who drives the story forward. And the third act gets very different. And that's where the movie is at its best, uh but the biggest issue I had was with the director
0: and, and Guy Ritchie.
1: I normally like Guy Ritchie. Mm-hmm. He, even when he makes bad movies, I think he, even King Arthur I so King Arthur is a <laughs> terrible movie, <laughs> but I like the way he shot it. It okay. was visually interesting. Okay. Um and the biggest problem I had with this Aladdin movie is that it it feels like they made Uh, a movie telling the story that had Psalms in it instead of a musical. Uh, I wanted a lot more magical realism. He doesn't really shoot the songs very interestingly. Uh, like, there's not enough color and not enough pizzazz. That's something that I, I, I just feel like there was a disconnect in what they well, you, wanted you, to
0: do. You, the only thing you have to compare it to is the, the animated one, which on that level has considerably yeah. more color and pizzazz well, and, 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 and
1: Unfortunately, like, I, I saw this shortly after I saw Rocket Man, which is such a beautiful magical realist movie. Like, I wanted more of that Mm -hmm. where it was just like crazy shit going on and and that fit what worked in my head however like like finding out mulan the remake isn't gonna have music and isn't gonna have the love plot i can't wait
0: yeah i'm I'm like good like
1: that's what i want they want to do
0: a wusha film do it it new
1: like like, that's great yeah um like I, i mostly enjoyed this movie i would recommend it if you can get your butt hurt out of the way and watch this as its own movie it's good, It's perfectly entertaining. and it's
0: great for kids. The number one thing I'll say I really appreciated about this film is that Will Smith, who initially I was like, really? He hasn't done anything really remarkable in quite some time, chooses to go a very different direction for the genie than Robin Williams did, which is exactly the right decision to make. Yeah. Both actors rely on their own natural style of comedy and charisma in doing this character. Uh, Williams much more on doing impressions constantly, just rapid shot impressions. Smith more with that sort of like that, that guileless charm that he has when he's at his best and he nails it. I'm like, yeah, I'm really glad you chose not to just do an impression of Robin Williams here and do your own thing. And it works.
1: And for all the people bitched about the effect of the the genie, I actually like the way it looked in the actual film. I thought it was, it worked.
0: Yeah. I thought it was fine. Uh, and the, like I said, the one major complaint was, and I was happy that Jasmine was getting much more. They gave her just so much more agency, more to do. Except when she does get a new song, even though it's also written by Alan Menken, who wrote the rest of it, it feels so See, different from everything else in the the movie.
1: I blame Guy Ritchie because if you watch that, like her first song, it's it's a one shot her just singing into the camera as she walks around the room. Mm-hmm. There is no flair to it. No. There's no. There's nothing special about it. It's not an interesting
0: it. sequence or yeah. song. I mean, and it's like, not a terrible I, song. I, I, I actually
1: like the song the itself. The
0: song is fine. It just doesn't it's fit. Just, doesn't work with the what they did in the movie. Uh, so what you have here, if you get this 4K, it's a fairly basic assortment of extras, as it were. There's Aladdin's video journal of New Fantastic Point of View, which is 10 and a ten-and-a-half-minute interview with uh, lead actor Mina Massoud, his phone camera, jour- camera journal in making this with cast and crew interview snippets. Uh, there's two minutes and 20 seconds of deleted song Desert Moon, with composer Alan Menken introducing it. There's Guy Ritchie, a cinematic genie, for five-and-a-half minutes, which takes a look at his filmmaking and where he came from, and his past, what his vision was for this. A friend like Genie, four and a half minutes with Will Smith, talking specifically about. Obviously, this was challenging because following in Robin Williams' shoes is something I can't imagine. I can't believe he even said yes. You know what I mean? I was like, well, especially at what what this phase challenge. of his
1: career when he's trying to kind of trying to come back and not always finding great success.
0: True. Uh, there's ten minutes forty four seconds of deleted scenes. Uh, There's 11 minutes, 33 seconds of music videos, uh, and then there's two minutes of bloopers, and all of it's okay. Like I said, this is a movie I will definitely go back and rewatch. I won't rewatch it as much as I will the animated one, which is decidedly the better of the two, but there's more than enough good stuff here to make this worth a watch all on its own. I may actually rewatch this more just
1: because the the original is so ingrained in me that this is at least something different.
0: (laughs) So lastly is the film that I suspect might be both of our picks of the week, which is The Mad Adventures of Rabbi Jacob. And talk about a film that was not even, not even not on my radar. It wasn't even on the periphery of my radar. (laughs) Nothing about this film I was familiar with at all. And, And it won't surprise you to hear that. It's a 1973 French Italian comedy, uh, directed by Gerard Uri, who was a relatively well known in France director, actor, and writer, and starring Louis de... I don't know if I'm pronouncing this like... Right, Funes, who... This was pretty much his one and only uh, film that played in America okay, at all. Say, uh, but he, he had a massively successful career in Europe of being considered one of the all-time comedy greats.
1: When I posted about this on Facebook, my my wife's, my wife's cousin's wife... Who is from France? Freaked out and was like, "Oh my god! I was raised on this guy's movies. He is amazing." I, I now I'm and halfway through
0: this movie and I was like, "I have got to find the rest of this guy's." Agrees. <laughs> uh, I,
1: I can He's tell you these, Fucking nature. It, it is 13 minutes into this movie. There is a visual gag with a car and a boat on top, and yeah. it f- goes through a wreck and flips over, yeah. and then a boat with a car on top. And Just, I was like, "I'm in."
0: This felt I'm like, sold. Like classic era Blake Edwards slash Mel Brooks. I mean, it's it really a, is that film that's at that level of hysterical and good and also, like, pushing the boundaries of, like, good taste in a way that never quite transgresses cool. over it. And so, like, the, the plot. Yeah. Uh, the the no guy problem. whose name I will
1: not try to pronounce. Um, <laughs> yeah,
0: Louis Dufanais? He, he plays...
1: Victor. ...what I can only describe as a, like... Pleasantly racist individual, huh. like, like, well, abs-
0: he- he's he's such an absurd. Delightfully, he's like like almost Inspector Clouseau level of like just being absurd. He's actually kind
1: of the. He's just like the the dad from Dogtooth, just without the creepy part Mm -hmm. and the the children held in a compound. But he owns a factory. He is explicitly racist. He's a wealthy guy who has a Jewish driver, which yes, that is plot important. Um, And they basically have a car wreck on accident. Uh, I don't think you would do it on purpose. It's called an accident. But So, so, and after a series of weird adventures, he ends up uh, being chased by a fake country's secret police who are going after him because he has fallen in with a kind of a rogue prince and they're trying to assassinate him mm-hmm. and this rogue prince and this beloved racist guy go on this adventure and eventually uh imitate or take over in place of this rabbi who we start yeah. the movie with and who does not show up again for 45 yeah, minutes and like
0: literally the movie starts like i'm going to the uh, france to to visit like my relatives is getting yeah. married and, and they're like, okay, see ya. And we do not see that. way, I think we see him once for like 30 seconds in between all that. And the movie's called The Mad Adventures yeah. of Rabbi Jacob. So you're like, it's like 45, 50 minutes before that they I, become I, relevant I, I thought the
1: movie was going to be in Yiddish. I was really I shocked when it was in French. I was
0: like, but, what is, I, so, I'm enjoying the movie, but I'm going, what is up with the title? Because so. <laughs> the rabbi has nothing to do with this movie. So, so they
1: pretend to be the rabbi and his something yeah. and go visit his family. And Basically, it's this madcap comedy filled with effortless visual comedy. There is a gag where he is talking with his wife on the phone, who is a dentist, who is decked out in pink, in a pink dress with a boa around her neck, and she slams the table angrily, and about a dozen fake teeth open up and close yeah. or or there's a bit later on where some royal security guards do the thing when people are passing under them and they uh, they put their halberts together but it cuts off the end of a tree right? and it just falls like the movie is rife with that kind non-stop of stuff non-stop
0: gags in it and and some of them really funny there's a whole sequence in a chase scene in a bubblegum factory <laughs> that had me fucking rolling dude i was like this is a riot how do i not know about this movie <laughs> <laughs> I forgot about that. It's so funny. It was amazing. I'm it, sure that people watching it by today's standard would find something to get upset
1: well, about. and So, so one thing I want to call out, because I've talked a lot about how the character is a racist, and, and like there is no doubt about that. In the first five minutes of his introduction, he sees a wedding between a black person and a white person, and is going, what the hell? Mm-hmm. Two things I want to point out. One, the movie is inherently about him coming to terms with that and realizing that he was wrong. Because he's also deeply anti-Semitic and ends up very much... Um, going, you know what? I realize we're all good people. I was wrong, mm-hmm. and also everybody surrounding him is you're a dick, dude. Yeah, like in the scene in the, the opening, movie is
0: not on when, his side. Yeah, w- 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 when he, he,
1: he starts complaining about the black person and the white person getting married. He turns to the to a cop and is like, "What the hell?" And the cop's response is what's the big deal? I don't understand. What?
0: Well, presents him as, he's such an absurd, like idiot. I mean, really, he's like, he is an Inspector Clouseau type yes. of character. Well, he's absurdly an idiot, but just manages to blunder through. <laughs> And it's one of those, you're like, you can't help, but the performance of this guy, he's like on fucking fire every second. Yeah. I've never seen a comic actor like this guy. He has his own distinct style that's not like anybody else. And what blows me away, so I thought this was going to
1: be a Pink Panther and Spectacular Clouseau thing where like, oh, maybe this guy shows up in a bunch of different movies. No. No. Like- all the other movies he did are just that actor playing other parts. I cannot wait to find the rest of this guy's filmography. Like I over hundred and thirty films. I've are, I've already pained my French whatever the heck she is second cousin I think, and I'm like, you need to give me some titles, and you need to give me discs. What if is, you have yeah, them. what
0: are the essential <laughs> movies to see by this guy? Because yeah. oh my god, he is really a comic genius. Yeah, yeah I, this is really great. I remember when I first got it, I was like shouted to my wife, I'm like. This looks like it's going to be exhausting She's like, you know what, give it a try Going into an open mind And I was not even 10 minutes in before I was like, holy shit, this movie is fucking great
1: 13 minutes in, that was the exact moment Uh, This is the of this set, this is the movie that I'm going to buy. Like, like right. I, I'm going to own this movie and watch it a lot.
0: And I'm definitely going to watch it again and show it to other people because it's just one of those, this is a real discovery for people who like that. Like I said, very Mel Brooks, very Blake Edwards style yeah. of humor, but done with this comedian who's just, his own thing. It'll make you want to track down other stuff by him. Yeah, I and this get- is when, when Like I said, one of the only films that was kind of more had it focused on an international release by this guy and it was nominated uh, for Best Foreign Language Film at the Golden Globes. So uh,
1: I, I got in trouble watching this movie because I laughed so hard I woke up the baby.
0: Aw. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> uh, there's not a lot of bonus features here. There's an interview with the co-screenwriter Danielle Thompson and there's a new essay by author Phoebe Maltz-Bovey that comes in a little booklet. They put with it, but you know what? That's more than you'd normally expect for a film that most uh, Americans would yeah. just have. And no freaking clue what it was at all. And I'm going to pull a Chris now, because this is film movement.
1: And the last, a couple of episodes ago, you kind of did this open letter to film movement yeah. to, to put out more Hong Kong action film movement. But Put out more, put out more this of this guy's movies. Exactly. I need to see more of them. <laughs> Agreed.
0: Well, that's it for this week's Digital Noise. I want to thank Aaron again for joining me, and uh, there'll be a little bit of a break Before the next Digital Noise, because we're about to enter Fantastic Fest zone, and that's, whew, but I've been frantically watching as many movies as I can that they've sent me to give to John so that, like, right when Fantastic Fest is over, we can record the next episode, which will probably be kind of epically sized because of that.
1: Well, at the very least, they're still going to hear a lot of us, because we're going to be talking about a lot of movies. That's true. (laughs) They're like, yeah, yeah, we weren't talking about Aaron, we just missed Digital Noise. (laughs)